Pleural effusions are common, with an estimated 1 to 1.5 million new cases in the United States and up to 250,000 in the United Kingdom a year. I'm joined today by Rahul Batnagar, one of the authors of this week's clinical review on this topic, to discuss how pleural effusions may be investigated and treated in the community in secondary care and how this condition is increasingly being managed in the outpatient setting. Rahul, thanks for joining me today. That's fine, thanks for having me. Can I first ask, what's the most common cause of pleural effusion? So overall, the commonest cause of a pleural effusion is most likely to be heart failure. Um, um, but if you were to take um, an individual patient group, such as those with exudates, then it may be infection, for example. When should clinicians suspect this diagnosis and what should they be looking for in the history and examination? So a pleural effusion can be challenging to uh, diagnose. Uh, it can certainly be challenging to differentiate it from other causes of uh, respiratory illness. Um, but signs that, and symptoms that patients, should, that patients may complain of and that doctors should ask about include increasing breathlessness, usually gradual, um, may include a cough, which can often be dry, and may include some pain. So pleuritic chest pain is not uncommon, especially if it's in the context of a recent infection, which may affect, may affect the um, the edge of the lung parenchyma. Um, in terms of signs, a patient may demonstrate uh, stony dullness on percussion um, and on auscultation, they may demonstrate um, uh, reduced air entry over the area of the pleural effusion. Sometimes it's also not uncommon to hear an area of bronchial breathing just superior to the fluid, um, which may represent an area of collapsed lung or squashed lung where the fluid is. You talk a little bit about some patients being able to be investigated in the community, but others will need inpatient admission. Can you talk a little bit about how to distinguish between those two groups? Yes, and again, it's, it, it can be a challenging differentiation to make, deciding who to send into hospital urgently and who can be managed as an outpatient. And I think one of the most important things to say is that that decision will have to be, will be made on a very local level. Primary care providers will have to be liaising closely with their secondary care providers to make sure that the service works correctly and sometimes that takes um, a great deal of time to work out but in general the patients who are most unwell i.e. those who have um, debilitating breathlessness are most likely to be those who are going to warrant admission other patients who uh, will warrant admission are those who will need urgent intervention. So for example, if someone has a hemothorax and has blood in the pleural space which needs draining, or someone who has empyema, so they have pus in the pleural space, which is the source of an infection, they will need draining and they will need admitting um, early on. When someone arrives in secondary care, either acutely or electively, what investigations are usually performed? So if a patient um, arrives in secondary care with a pleural effusion, we would normally um, initially undertake a history and examination, as we previously described, um, and we would then undertake some form of imaging if it hadn't been done already in the community. This often starts with a chest X-ray to either confirm um, or to prove the presence of a pleural effusion. And certainly in our practice, we would then go on to do a thoracic ultrasound scan, which is increasingly being adopted by respiratory physicians. That allows us to visualize the fluid and maybe even make some further inferences about what's caused it and its nature um, and to localise its uh, its presence. So another investigation we might perform in secondary care is uh, a CT scan, a commuted tomography scan, and these are increasingly becoming uh, a vital, uh, if not pivotal, part of investigating a pleural effusion. They're able to 
very clearly define what aspects of the chest are being affected by the pleural effusion, and this is especially useful in cases of loculated effusions, whereby the fluid is arranged into different pockets, perhaps completely separated from each other in the chest. It's also very useful as a modality for determining whether there's a primary cause for an effusion. So, for example, in the, in the context of a malignancy, you may see a primary tumour within the lung or elsewhere in the chest, um, which would give you an indication as to what the likely cause of the effusion is. Once we know exactly where it is, we can look to sample the pleural effusion. And we do this quite often initially with just a simple small bore needle and a syringe. And we take samples um, for various tests, which can allow us to begin the differentiation process. What are the management options for pleural effusions once you've made the diagnosis? So the Management options for pleural effusions, uh, once a diagnosis has been made, depend upon the underlying uh, cause. So if pleural effusion has been caused by a systemic illness which is readily treatable, such as, for example, heart failure, then it may be optimization of the cause of the effusion is the primary treatment that needs to be undertaken. However, if a patient has, for example, a pleural malignancy, such as mesothelioma, which is un, un uncurable if not um, treatable to some degree, then um, it may be that management of recurrent fluid becomes the priority. Um, that can be undertaken in a number of ways. Um, some patients can, un can have recurrent aspirations, so they can come back to hospital on a weekly or monthly basis, for example, and have a simple aspiration whereby a small tube is inserted under local anaesthetic and usually up to one and a half litres of fluid is drawn off for symptomatic relief. For a more permanent or for a slightly longer term treatment, patients may be admitted to hospital for a few days for an intercostal chest tube, which again is usually inserted under local anaesthetic. That allows the chest to be fully drained in one sitting, usually over 24 hours. And at the end of that drainage, patients may have a chemical substance, usually talc powder, inserted back into the chest to allow the chest wall and the lung to be stuck together and hopefully to prevent further fluid. The final option that's increasingly used for patients with recurrent pleural effusions, especially those with malignant pleural effusions, are indwelling pleural catheters. These are similar to the chest tubes I just described, but they are tunneled much like a, um, a, a Hickman line or a PICC line that um, readers may be familiar with. And they are sited just under a small dressing on the patient's chest and allow fluid to be drained in the community environment rather than uh, in the hospital environment. And they've been excellent in allowing us to push um, and or to allow patients to be managed in a more comfortable environment. How long can these catheters remain in situ for? So indwelling pleural catheters can remain in situ for many years, if necessary, if they're looked after correctly. Um, and in fact, the, the gentleman I have with me, Mr. Hewish, our patient, um, had his first indwelling pleural catheter in situ for over two years. Um, it's more common, however, certainly in the context of malignancy, for catheters to remain in place for a few weeks to months, um, because often the fluid dries up over a, 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 over a longer period of time. Some of our readers won't be that familiar with seeing patients who have these devices in situ. Can you give some tips about how to care for them, what complications to be aware of? 
Absolutely. So um, there are a number of tips that I would recommend for doctors or nurses who may be faced with a patient with an indwelling pleural catheter. Um, I think the first one to say is that although they may look unfamiliar, they are essentially a normal chest drone, which many people will be familiar with, but with a slightly different insertion technique. There are a number of manufacturers of indwelling pleural catheters um, around the world, although in the United Kingdom at the moment, um, I'm only aware of two manufacturers on the market. The reason I mention that is because they are some aspects of the drains are proprietary. Um, predominantly the drainage bottles and the access kit. So if I was to approach uh, a patient with an indwelling pleural catheter, what I would see under a dressing is a small loop of clear silicon tube uh, with a, uh, an adapter on the end of it. That adapter allows the pleural space to be accessed. It can only be accessed using an adapter provided by the appropriate manufacturer um, and usually it's connected to uh, a vacuum bottle system. The patient will have two incision sites as opposed to the single incision site and so it's important to look for evidence of infection along the track if they think if the patient is developing erythema or is developing symptoms along the track. Sometimes patients can, um, over the course of months or years if they're being drained for that long, can have changes in the colour of their fluid and actually that can be disconcerting for the patient and for nursing staff who may be involved in the drainage but actually it can be quite normal. Um, another thing to remember is that if the patient has a degree of trapped lung whereby the lung doesn't fully expand, it, it may transpire that air comes out into the drain and again this is nothing necessarily to be worried about especially if it's happened on previous occasions. It's important to maintain the hygiene of a drain like this and as such patients should be told that they can shower and bathe with a drain but they shouldn't have the dressing wet for any length of time because obviously this will be a good source uh, for infection. Um, it's possible, although rare, for the proprietary one-way valve at the end of the drain to become damaged, perhaps during dressing or if it becomes caught on something. It's important that if that does happen, the drain is clamped as soon as possible and the local secondary care provider who inserted the drain is made aware of what's happened um, because otherwise there's a direct communication with the pleural space and the patient can develop a uh, pneumothorax. And I think probably the final two things that I'd mention, um, uh, which are perhaps more more relevant on the uh, in in the secondary care environment, would be that if a patient is admitted acutely with an indwelling pleural catheter already in situ, and it's felt by the team that the pleural space needs to be drained freely, perhaps in the context of infection, that these drains can be used as a normal drain by using again the appropriate um, proprietary attachment valve um, and attaching it to a simple underwater drain which virtually all readers will hopefully be familiar with. The other thing which is perhaps more directed at our oncology colleagues is that indwelling pleural catheters aren't a contraindication to chemotherapy and in fact the, uh, the majority of patients that we have inserted them for will have undergone chemotherapy at some point. Thank you and what advice do you give to patients after you've inserted one of these pleural catheters? So uh, our advice um, to patients following the insertion of an indwelling pleural catheter um, is, is relatively simple. It involves care of themselves and care of the drain. In terms of care of themselves, we say that you will, be, you will experience a degree of soreness and perhaps irritation around the drain insertion site for probably a few days. This is usually simply controlled with basic analgesia such as paracetamol 
or codeine phosphate in low doses. The the patients that we speak to usually aren't requiring any additional analgesia after four to five days. Other advice would would involve looking out for um, bruising or leaking or uh, bleeding around the site, which we would want to know about. Um, Other things that we tell patients uh, are more related to the long-term care. So I've already mentioned that we advise patients to um, keep good care of the drain and to make sure that it doesn't get wet and to make sure that it doesn't, um, or to make sure that the dressings don't get wet um, and that drainages are performed in a fully aseptic technique, which is why certainly in our practice, we default initially certainly to having healthcare professionals undertake the drainage, although there is absolutely no reason in the longer term that um, patients themselves or family members can't undertake drainage. One final thing that we often say to patients is that it may be an unusual sensation, perhaps even bordering on discomfort, certainly initially and if and in the context of trapped lung, um, they may experience unusual, uh, unusual sensations or pain <clears throat> during drainage. This can be an indication that there's no more fluids to come out, um, but it can also be an indication that the lung is unable to expand any further and it's being put under increased negative pressure. I think the bottom line when it comes to managing patients and to advising patients with intraoral catheters is that it's a very individual treatment and the patient and the carers will get to know how that individual responds to the drainage. And Rahul, finally, are there any restrictions that doctors should be aware of for patients with pleural catheters? For example, travelling or swimming? Sure. Um, flying, no, absolutely no problem. We have we regularly have people go on holiday. I mean, the practicalities of going on holiday are slightly different in that y- you can imagine you have to take bottles with you or you have yeah. to go somewhere who, which can supply bottles. In mm-hmm. the UK, it's less of an issue because they're quite... Um, uh, they're quite ubiquitous now, and you'll usually be able to find a, a, a GP practice with a district nurse team who are able to manage locally. Um, internationally, the bottles can be quite bulky, so if, you, if patients are planning on going away for two or three weeks, that can be awkward, but certainly not a deal breaker. Um, the uh, with regards to swimming, although it's it's possible that patients can go swimming, we certainly we, we usually don't recommend it purely because of the things that are in the pool in that I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with the chemicals that are used to clean the pool consistently getting into coming into contact with the the silicon. Um, although I certainly have heard cases, you know, off the record of patients swimming in the sea and patients going swimming. But I'd always default back to what I've said before, which is that the most important thing is not to have a wet dressing for any length of time. Um, what we don't want to hear is that a patient went swimming uh, sorry, went swimming with a dressing on and then the district nurse was coming the next day and that entire 24-hour period mm. they were left with a wet dressing. Um, it, so it's practicalities really. We often say to patients, don't swim or bathe or get it wet for a good month um, after it's inserted because obviously we want to allow the site to heal fully. I'm also joined today by Ronald Hewish, a patient who has experienced the symptoms of pleural effusion firsthand. Ron, thanks for joining me today. Right, thank you. Can you tell me first about when you noticed something wasn't right? Well, I like, uh, although I've been retired a long time, I like swimming and a bit of gentle exercise in the gym. The problem is I found the end of the pool became further and further away. And when I got there, I was in dire difficulty of getting my breath back. 
Uh, I eventually went to my GP and said, what's wrong? Uh, he said, I think it's heart, and sent me to uh, Southampton Hospital for uh, an echocardiogram. They did that, but said, it's not your heart, chum, it's your lungs, and you've got a lot of fluid there, uh, at which point they were referred to the respiratory people, and on from there. Apart from the breathlessness, did you have any other symptoms with the pleural effusion? Not really, no. Okay, so there was no pain or discomfort? It was no, none really... at all. That's, uh, that's what was uh, fooling me, that uh, I ought to have some other problem and didn't. Okay. And when you arrived at the respiratory doctors at the hospital, what did they do? Well, they did various checks, uh, particularly the um, x-rays and that kind of thing, and also the ultrasound. Sorry, I couldn't have the name. Uh, did ultrasound which showed there was quite a lot of fluid there. Uh, firstly, I was given uh, diuretics for ferrosamide to see what that would do. It didn't help particularly. Increased the dose, but that unfortunately made me wobbly. I believe that um, reduces your blood pressure. So nothing that way was having any effect. So they, they went into it further and... Uh, did a thoroscopy and eventually decided that the answer was to fit a, uh, an IPC. And tell me a bit about the process of fitting in the, the catheter. What happened? Well, I had to be in for a day. Um, it was uh, a normal surgical procedure, lay out on the, uh, the bed and, and, and all the um, uh, machinery around you. I felt nothing, it went in very easily, and it drained immediately. So it was a very simple process, and um, uh, I had no great difficulty with it. And how did this affect your symptoms? Well, that meant, of course, I had to be drained, and they were taking out as much as a litre and a half from me a week. Uh, It made a great difference. uh, As soon as I was drained, I could feel a large space inside of me where the fluid disappeared. And it made breathing much, much, much easier. Um, in fact, almost back to normal for, for a reasonably short period. You mentioned that you were having fluid taken off weekly. And how long did that continue for? Well, I had the drain on the left-hand side in for two years. Uh, it went on the whole time. Interestingly, I <laughs> couldn't help calculating how much came out. Over those two years, 92 litres came out. Uh, 20 gallons in the old, measure, uh, old old way, so I could fill my car quite twice easily with the amount of fluid taken out. That is the, car quite... move, the car wouldn't have moved, but that's beside the point. That is quite an impressive amount of fluid that your body it produced. It is, really, yes. It yes. is. Um, can, you say, can you explain a little bit about what advice you were given when you, when you had the catheter inserted, Ron? Well, I was told that I needed to be careful with it, obviously, and be very um, fastidious with the, uh, the procedures. I couldn't, unfortunately, have it done uh, by my wife, so we had to use the community nurses who called on me three times a week. They were very careful indeed, and uh, gloves, um, aprons, the whole lot, and made sure they cleaned everything every time and used the proper procedures for it. That went very simply. Uh, it disruptive, obviously, in terms of um, having to be in three mornings a week, but much, much easier than having to come to the hospital once a week or more time than that 
to have the draining done that way. And did you have any complications whilst the catheter was in place? Not really, no. It, it went very easily all the time. I once or twice had blood come out with the fluid, which uh, rather worried me. But I gather that's not abnormal. And the uh, nurses here in the hospital reassured me very quickly that that was okay. Uh, apart from that, no, no great difficulty at all. And you mentioned, obviously, the disruption of having to be in three mornings a week for the drainage. But apart from that, was there any change in your day-to-day activities whilst you had the drain in? No, I couldn't swim. I, I took the advice about swimming pools and the uh, the nasty things that could be in the pool. So I didn't swim, which is most uh, upsetting. But I went back and did a gentle exercise in the gym, not as much as I used to, and uh, carried on life as normal. It messes up your life in terms of holidays and that kind of thing. As uh, was being said, taking bottles with you and arranging for it to be drained off is a problem. Mm. But then that's what life is about, unfortunately. Is there anything during your journey as a patient that you would have liked to have been handled differently? No, I don't think it was. I'm very happy with the way I've been dealt with here. Uh, I've always been told what was going on. I've always had a a very interesting time with the the doctors, Uh, never been under pressure of time, um, not apparent pressure of time, Uh, and I've always come away with a a contented feeling that I've been dealt with properly. And a lot of our readers, Rod, might not be that familiar with these pleural catheters. What tips would you give them about seeing patients who have these catheters in place? Yeah, well, I think it's a bit frightening to be have the, this kind of thing put into you and the repercussions of it. But really, it goes quite straightforwardly. Um, I think if it's explained properly and uh, the, particularly the nurses know what they're doing, and they certainly did with, in my case, um, uh, th- there's no great problem. Tips, I, I, I think, don't be frightened. Accept uh, what it is, and it, it does certainly solve your problem. You've been listening to Rahul Batnagar and Ronald Hewish talk about the clinical review on the modern diagnosis and management of pleural effusions now available on the bmj.com.